I would say the main thing is like, you got to work on having an open heart. Protect your heart, but open it up so your mind, body, and soul can all kind of align. And that will help you start listening to your instincts. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Amazon's Black Stories, where we highlight the stories of Black designers, researchers, and creative minds from all around the world. I'm your host, Justin James Lopez, and today I'm joined by Moses Sun, where we discuss the importance of keeping an open heart, leaning into ambiguity, and trusting your own instincts. Now let's hear his story. Well, again, thanks, Moses, for, for joining me today and agreeing to join me today. I know you got a lot going on with your work at Amazon and just broadly with your, your gallery. But for the listeners here, I wanted to just kind of give you an opportunity to introduce yourself and introduce the work that you do. Yeah, my name is Moses Sun. I'm an interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary artist. I work in everything from collaborations with communities to studio work to large-scale murals, to working with my art collective that I'm a co-founder of, the Vivid Batter Collective. And I really seek to, in, in much of my work, which is mixed media, meaning mixing in the analog, like drawing and painting with the digital painting and drawing and sometimes animation and that sort of thing. I really seek to connect diasporas of the world that have always really inspired me or held me close or provided comfort, wisdom when I would say like like the European diaspora kind of would turn its back on me when it was kind of done with me. You know, yeah. it was much, much more transactional, less communal, I would say. And and that that would be a lot of, you know, just talking about just being a black person in America. Yeah. And working in different atmospheres, working in different places where, you know, you think you're friends and then when you're no longer working there, you're no longer, you just drop off. You almost learn what, what the relationship really is, right? True. True. Yeah. True. But those true relationships, those true bonds, they last over time. So yeah. there's people of all sorts from all different backgrounds that I've continued to be able to talk to, rely on, collaborate with, congregate, conversation, what have you. So I just look at it over time and see like the the people that have stayed around. And it's a real variety of folks, not just stayed around, but been engaged, you know, so. Yeah, I, I, I get that. What's interesting is our relationship is interesting from an origin point perspective, because I actually... You know, in my work here at Amazon, I actually told a story about you about a year ago about the work that you did. Mm-hmm. And we'll, we'll jump into a few of these things, but like specifically, it started with me seeing the, the partnership that you had with Amazon as a freelance artist working with Amazon on the Black is Remarkable campaign for Black History Month. I actually didn't, you know, actually talk to you about that story. It was really more about the partnership at a high level. And there's different reasons for that, for sure. But that story ended up coming out. And then I was lucky enough to meet you later and kind of build more of that that background in the true relationship. But when we talk about 
that partnership as an artist. How did that even happen when it comes to working on the Black is Remarkable campaign, right? So this goes back to relationships. This goes back to a friend from college who now has his own ad agency called Shea Creative based in New York. He hit me up around maybe it was October, could have been November. He says, hey, you know, you want to get in on this Amazon Black History Month. And all I thought to myself, they're kind of late. Kind of late. <laughs> you know, yeah. like I just, I, that was just my automatic feeling. Like I was like, they're good, kind of late. But I was like, okay. I was like, yeah, sure. You know, you're my boy. I trust you. Am I the only, like I was ready to interrogate because I was just like, okay. Yeah. Who, who else is Black that's working on this campaign? Blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, blase, blase. And then next thing you know, they're like, oh, well, actually, you don't have to worry about that because Amazon wants to work directly with you. And I was like, word? Okay, cool. And so I get in contact with the cross team, like cross media team or something. something like oh, that. yeah, I know but, what you're talking about. The the group that handles like all of the external partnerships for these things. Because I actually work with them for a few features because it's not just Black History Month that they do it, right? Yeah. I, I think it's important to call out so that people don't you know, start to be like, what? They do it for different yeah. events across the year and they work with local artists or just like general, just the artists. Because one of them wasn't local at all, actually. But they work with like different artists, freelance artists or just artists from agencies or different agencies from across the world to partner with revamping the website for different purposes throughout the year. Black History being one of them and Latino History Month. Pride Month was another as well. Yeah, Pride Month. Because they the example they gave me was they showed me like a profile they'd done for Latino History. yeah. That was another one as well, yeah. And so I was like, all right, cool. I worked over the winter holiday. I, I don't usually work during winter holidays. I usually like put everything down. But this is just kind of like, I don't know, my spirit just really moved me. I was like, okay, this is important. It's bigger than me. And it's also like I was doing, you know, like these what they call these aura portraits of people. I was doing original artwork and then I was doing handmade text. So it was like, Three different components that required a lot of, you know, discipline and, and thought. And, and fortunately, they were able to give me, you know, some color palettes and things of that nature. But what was wild was that how it went from the East Coast all the way down to Miami and then back to Seattle for me to just work with them in Seattle. Yeah. And that the work had already been presented earlier as a favorite matter collective. And then I'd actually met Galen when I was painting during the protests in 2020, when I was painting the Black Lives Matter mural and I was painting the letter M, I'd actually met him then. Nice. Didn't remember because I met so many people and it was like such a like intense place to be, like painting in the middle of protests, you know, teach-ins, you know, all this stuff that was going on all at, all at one time. So it all came full circle. And so I was very grateful for that and just took a chance. You know, I was like, I don't know how it's going to be to work on something like this because it's a pretty, you know, much more commercial driven, but it was a real pleasure. It was, we, we really got on well. We worked well as a, as a group and a team. I, I felt very collaborative. Yeah. As an artist, that's kind of relieving to hear, right? Like, especially working with a big corporation, 
you never want to feel like you're just kind of doing what they tell you. You have some type of autonomy to bring your insight and your vision to life. Yeah. And it sounds like that's what you you really got from that experience at a high level, at least. Oh, yeah, for sure. When it comes to the next step in the journey, when we actually met, right, in person. Yeah. Right. So I'm, I'm walking yeah. by your studio now at Amazon for the, the time in one of the buildings. I'm not going to name the exact building. I walk by your studio. I see you and... You know what? I'm going to be honest. The first thought that went through my mind of like, oh, you got to tell him that you wrote a story about him and you got to be okay with however he feels about it. Like I literally in my head, I was like, you got to be okay with however he feels about it because you didn't speak to him about it. And you were super cool about it. And this was when you're working with the expression slap, right? Which is something that's separate from that previous project that you were working on. Oh yeah. Maybe tell us a little bit about the expressions lab, whatever you can tell us. And How did you get plugged into that? Well, the Expressions Lab, there's actually two. And one is for the employees of Amazon. If you don't know about this employee, you have an entire lab. And that lab is actually an art studio full of all sorts of like everything that you could ever want from paint to materials like collage materials to whatever you need and there's workshops. It's really cool. So it's right across from the Amazon artist residency expressions lab. And so my lab is really like it's a studio here in Seattle. And there's another one that's in Bellevue and there's a cohort of, I can't remember how many people whose proposals are accepted every year, but I originally had written a proposal year before and I didn't get in. And then I, I said, well, what I need to do is get more specific. So I really thought about the way I was writing it and thought about how I could localize it. I started thinking about the history of Seattle and people that I knew and specifically how I was getting history from Takiya Ward, who's like four generations family, Black African-American family here in Seattle. So I was like fascinated. And I was like, well, there's my key right there. So I wrote my whole proposal about that and creating these things called Diaspora Portals. That got me in. And then they were like, what do you want? I said, I need it at the end of the year because I knew I had some other things planned. So I was able to come in this year. And it's just been really amazing because I've, I've been working on Diaspora Portals, but then I've been working on a bunch of other things too because of just the kind of state of things in the sense of like I've entered into this kind of flow state. So when I walk into here, I just kind of flow from one thing to the next and that's actually the name of, of my closing show is Flow State. And it's the acceptance of what is, like what is in the, in the moment versus, instead of kind of going with, the, with that flow, maybe they're like, oh, they start beating themselves up about, oh, this didn't turn out the way I wanted, or I don't know how to do this, or, oh, I need to learn this, but I'm intimidated or whatever. It's just like, no, let's just go and flow. And the funny thing about, you know, how you're, You know, Justin, you're talking about how you wrote about me without meeting me. So Barry Johnson, who was in the residency before I was in the same room, that's how we met. (laughs) So Barry, he wrote a a review of some art I was showing at Wanawari a number of years ago. I think I reached out to him, but we didn't really connect. And then COVID hit. Yeah. And then we had started connecting and then we would do these virtual studio talks where we're literally just like on the phone on FaceTime doing studio talks. 
And then we ended up meeting in 2020 at the protest. Literally, like he's down, he's, he's down at the E, I'm at M. He chose E for his daughter. I chose M for my dad. And we literally looked at each other for the first time and just say, what's up? And then just put our hands down and started working. <laughs> when yeah. we talked and you're like, yeah, I, I read about you. I was like, oh, that's cool. That's dope. It's so good to meet you. Because it's like, you know, so many times you don't get to meet the people that are behind the scenes and yeah, and helping you shine because you really helped me shine quite a bit. My family was really proud. Like, wow, you're really out here, like making this art work for you. I think it's powerful, right? Especially coming from a space where you, and we can jump into a little bit more about your, you know, your background and your journey with, you know, your artistic journey, but like just understanding that there's different roles that people can play and there's different avenues that people can take when it comes to what success looks like in the creative space. Mm -hmm. Your journey in collaborating with different major corporations, but being able to do it where, you know, you can kind of own your creative space is something that's unique when it comes to how we collaborate with big business. Cause usually it's, that's not the, you know, the, the thing that we do, we, we come in, we're in-house and then we, we work on the products the way that they want us to work on it, but you take a different approach. And I, I think that that's really valuable. So when we think about that journey for you, where did art come into your life? And then we're taking it way back, right? Consciously, I remember drawing, but I remember distinctly my granny, my great grandmother asking me what I wanted to be when I grow up. And I was like four or five years old. And I was like, I want to be an artist. And then I said, and a, and a fireman. Cause I knew like <laughs> some reason, yeah. some reason I knew like, I didn't really want to be a fireman. I just threw that in because I played with like toys with their head firemen. But I think I just really wanted to be an artist, but I knew uh, somehow I knew like that was like, not the thing. Yeah. You know, that's not all you could be. You always had to have this duplicity. So even at the age of like five, I understood that. That's like society doing its thing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we didn't really have arts programs where I was growing up. So if I were to have said that, <laughs> everyone would have been like, oh, so you want to be homeless and alone. Mm -hmm. And that's what that really means in a space where it's not valued. And when you think about your journey, how did you go from like, I want to be an artist and fireman to, you know, let's drop this, you know, this other thing that makes the statement more tasteful and let me just go with what I really want to do. Like, where was that shift in your mind? That shift occurred when I was at University of North Carolina School of Arts, their high school summer program. I had previously been deeply involved in politics. I was a real political nerd of like from the age of 13 to about like 18, 19 years old. I was in like Teen Democrats. My dad had given me my first camera, so I was photographing everything. And by the way, my dad didn't give me like a simple point and shoot. He gave me like a full-on manual camera. I was not prepared <laughs> at the age of 13 to deal with. Yeah. So I had to make some really like big errors, like and, and shed a few tears about underexposed film <laughs> before the good grace of my neighbors like taught me how to use my camera because I was like I wasn't like one to like read manuals. I always had to like learn tactically. Yeah. And so I'm I'm at this summer session in North Carolina and Winston Salem and I'm just like really serious. My teachers are serious. I was doing sculpture. I get a call. 
from my friend Jerry. And he's like, hey, do you want to be a runner at the Democratic Convention? I was like, yeah. He goes, okay, well, you got to get down here. Like, let me know and we'll make arrangements so you can come down and be a runner. And I knew what that meant, like in the political sense, like I was about to start my, like I'd already started my political career, but being a runner was basically going to be like, I would meet everybody that I was going to need to meet in order to be a politician. Yeah. But I was also like deep into art and self-expression and, you know, deconstructing power and speaking truth to power. So I had these dichotomies going on. So I'm thinking like, okay, cool. I've got like a couple more weeks left. I'm doing well at school. I got auditions coming up. So I go to my teachers and I say, hey, I just got this call. I have this opportunity to be a runner at the Democratic Convention, blah, blah, blah. And I said, oh, could I audition early? And my teachers just looked at me dead ass and said, no. <laughs> just that there was not even like a thing. I was like, wait, wait, no. I was like, and I almost, I was like, but how could you say no when this is a great opportunity and I'm doing well here. And, you know, this is like part of this whole thing of like, you know, this is all good stuff. This is all like, I'm achieving. I'm, I'm, and the, but they were just like, no, we're not going to let you in early. And I was just like, okay. So then I had to sleep on it and I said, okay, I guess I'll sleep on it and I'll make a decision. And I slept on it and woke up the next day and I was like, hey, Jerry, yeah, I'm not coming. Yeah. And that was it. That was the beginning of the end of me and my pursuit of being a politician. Have you ever thought about that decision and thought that you should have made a different one? No. I said, it's a relieving feeling, right? When you think about life that way, like you think about these critical moments and I don't know that everyone always feels that way about their critical moments in life. Like sometimes you're thinking, you go, man, my life would be completely different. But what we're really saying in that sense, because that's a statement that's always true, right? If I did this other thing, my life would be completely different. That's always going to be true. Yeah. But what we're really saying is my life would be a lot better if I did X, but it sounds like that's not what you felt here. You're like, no, I nah. actually feel like I made the right decision in that moment. Yeah. It was that first step in walking in my path. And I didn't realize it, but my sister and my dad realized it because they, much later on, years later, I was talking to my sister and she was just like, I'm so glad that you're making art, you know, as much as you're making it now because you were always happiest when you were at school. And I was like, what? Yeah. Because I remember that time as being like, there's a bunch of personal turmoil going up with my family. And I just put all my everything into my art and I like cut people off. Like I stopped talking to people. Like I was just like 1,000 feet deep in it. Like there was no like coming up for oxygen or air. It was just like I was just in it. And it was self imposed pressure. It was pressure from being, you know, in the school, but it was also just like, I was very like self-possessed. Yeah. And I didn't realize it at the time, but I really was. And so I would say that was the big turning point. And then for me, I became pretty apathetic about politics, about in America, about the difference it could make or not. So it wasn't until summer of 2020 and when I got that DM from Takia to be like, hey, you want to come and work on the, you want to do some, do some protest art on the street mural? And I was like, yes. 
And then when I got there, you know, I had my PPE on, you know, we didn't have vaccines then or anything, you know, it was just like, mm-hmm. so I came with my mask and PPE, it came with like, I spent like my last dollars on like, like brushes and whatever I could. And, and then I could feel this presence that I hadn't felt before. Yeah. And then it was then I realized, oh, wait a minute. My activism never went away. It just went dormant because mm. I was so caught up in my corporate career, my corporate creative, like, you know, design, UX, creative director, lead artist, you know, this or that, all these titles that at the end of the day gave me lots of experiences. But as the way I would function within organizations, I just wasn't political and I wasn't always looking out for myself. Yeah. I was always kind of looking out for what's a bigger mission of the company. And, you know, while in corporations, you really have to look out for yourself. Well, for me, it kind of fooled me into thinking that I was making progress. Yeah. And I was, but I wasn't making progress with my heart. If anything, my heart was getting more and more damaged as I continued throughout, you know, from one, one corporate gig to the next. And, and the nurturing part is really big, especially when it comes to creativity, because you need time, you need buy-in, especially when you're working in a corporation, you need buy-in to be a autonomous problem solver. Yeah. And you, you need to be trusted. And because I've worked previously in so many different industries, mm-hmm. cool, I'm down. Like they may have thought, you know, I never would say that in an interview, <laughs> But that's really how I approached it. I was like, oh, this is this is dope. I get to learn about this whole new industry I've never even known about. Yeah. And I get to create simultaneously and build teams and do this and that. So it's it's always this flexibility to go from one place to the next. But my thing was just I just wasn't a political animal within the corporation. Yeah, I think that that's a part of the game, right? Like I mentioned before, like I, I really do feel that because one of the things that frustrates me the most as a, as you put it, corporate creative is having to, you know, to want to create this vision. And it's, it is a bigger vision, right? It's not necessarily mine. It's something that has to bleed into, you know, business objectives and overarching, you know, high level, you know, VP goals and all of this stuff like organizational goals. But then you have these moments where you can kind of like impact change in certain ways, but you have to do that through this political game that's so exhausting because we could do our jobs <laughs> so much more efficiently and quickly if we just said what we actually felt and like just moved on. Like don't say it's not personal. It we're just talking about the thing. Let's move on. But you have all of these people that are really looking at it from the me, 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 I, I, I perspective. <laughs> How do I be seen? How do I stand up? How do I stand out instead of really trying to develop people? And, you know, while you may develop in certain ways that you still fall off in other ways, right? Like I recently heard this joke and the joke was about a pheasant and a bull and they were grazing in, you know, on a farm. And the pheasant, he looked up at a tree and he said, man, I remember, you know, a time where I could, you know, I could fly all the way up to the top of that tree. And the bull said, well, look, here's what you can do every day. Eat uh, just a bit of my my dung. And within a, a fortnight, you'll be able to get up to the top of the 
to the top of the the tree. And he's like, man, you know, that's crazy. And he was like, no, it's serious. Most of humanity is doing this. So you can, you'll be able to get to the top if you just, if you just do that. So the pheasant does, does this, right? Every day he eats just a bit. And by the, the end of the, the fortnight, he's at the top of the tree, right? And as, as, he, as he's up there, right, the farmer looks up and he sees this fat pheasant sitting on the top of a tree. So pulls his shotgun out, shoots him down. And the moral of the story that he was talking about was that BS, it can get you to the top, but it won't keep you there. And I think that that's something that a lot of people don't, they don't pay attention to, right? They don't understand the, the, the disruptive nature of, of the things that they're doing and the, and the way that they do it. But that was a really good way to describe it as, as you were describing it when you think about like the I versus we perspective. Yeah. Well, it's also like keeping, keeping your soul intact. Oh, I mean, for better or worse, like there's some places you can work at that you can really keep your soul intact. And there's other places where you're making up for it in different ways, but your soul is just, it's injured. It gets injured, especially when it comes to creativity, the things that can influence the decision-making so often has nothing to do with the, the actual brief. What is your advice for people that want to focus on nurturing their soul, focusing on building that back up if it may have been damaged or it may currently be you know, damaged in these ways existing in this space because you've jumped between worlds, right? From being a corporate creative to you know owning your own agency, being freelance, but still bouncing back and, and being able to work with a lot of these major corporations in your own way. Yeah. What is your advice for someone that is trying to heal their soul, as you put it? First off, travel. Travel someplace you've never been or travel someplace that really gives you a sense of uh, peace. Yeah. The reason I say travel, and especially travel in the places, more like places you haven't been or that you may not know much about, is because it gives you a chance to stand in your own light. Mm. Because other places you go, the first question isn't, what do you do? Yeah. Oh, man. Other places you go is like, who are you? Oh, brother, where are you from? It's all the other stuff has fallen off. Yeah. Now, the money that you make from the job may have given you the tools to take the trip and the journey. But that's one of the things is travel. I would say meditation. I always encourage people, especially like creatives, who do a lot of like corporate client facing work, whether they own their own agency or they're working for somebody. I, I encourage everyone to do this one exercise every night. And I say, draw for five minutes a night, mm. every night, no matter what, just five minutes. You can just do an automatic drawing or doodle or some people call it doodling. It starts to open up channels in your mind that you may not even know are there. Yeah. Or, or that you may feel have gone away, but they're still there. It's like travel, drawing, journaling, and getting outside of your comfort zone and actually meeting other artists. Yeah. Meeting other creative people. And artists doesn't necessarily mean visual art. Artists means, you know, if you run into that elder at the cafe who's a saxophonist, like, yo, get down with that brother right away. <laughs> like, yeah. 
get down and pay your respect because you will learn more in like 10 minutes of conversation than you, than you have in like four years of college. Yeah. And, and I, and I can attest to that frequency that people see you actually allows people to kind of drop their guard because they see you, they may be watching you. They may be seeing you. You don't even know it, but that person may connect you with this or that. Just the other day, my friend Michael came by. I'd met him at Cafe Fiore, which I've been going to for like, since I moved here. He got me my first gig at Microsoft. Yeah. And that was just through going through the coffee shop. I always encourage people to go outside their comfort zone. Ambiguity is actually really good because it's not necessarily like there's a right or there's a wrong place. There's always just like a place to go. And I thrive on ambiguity. I'm one of those people who actually loves it. Yeah, it sounds like it, right? But Moses, there's a lot that I gained from this conversation, but also in general, like just our interactions by and large, they've always been really enriching being able to see your art in person, see you as a, as a human and the work that you do and the vision behind it. I think that there's a lot to be gained here and definitely like a lot more than we can all talk about in this one episode. But I wanted to thank you for just joining me and I look forward to you know continuing our friendship and building that out. Oh, same here, man. I mean, like, I feel like we could talk for hours. There's, there's so much. Yeah. I want to thank you for making this time and look forward to more conversations with you. Appreciate you, man very much. I appreciate you too.